morning, Community Bible Church of Northern Westchester. It is really a delight for me to be here with you again, to worship with you, to hear um, some of the stories um, that you bring with you, some of the stories of God's grace in your life and the gifts that he's given you and the ways in which you're using those gifts to glorify him and to express yourself. Um, I feel like just coming here this morning has given me a chance to um, know a little bit more about uh, the big family that God has made us a part of. And that's, that's partially what I'd like to speak with you about today. You know, the scriptures, they tell us who we are as individuals. The scriptures tell us that we, that each of us was individually and carefully made by God. Did you know that? That you are individually uh, his meticulous creation, made in his image to reflect who he is to the world. And, and more than that, more than that, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are also God's child. Individually and specifically adopted and beloved. That's your identity as an individual. But today I'd like us to think about our identity from a slightly different angle. The passage that we're going to look at today speaks to our collective identity, not our individual identity, but our collective identity as God's people. Again, our creator, God, certainly sees us as individuals. He knows us individually and perfectly. He knows our stories, our needs. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But, but, he also knows and interacts with his people collectively as a people, as a vast community called his church. And that's our focus today, our collective identity as the church, and not even as Community Bible Church or my home church, New Hope Fellowship, but I want us to think about our collective identity as the church worldwide, this community that spans the globe and spans the centuries. And so I'm calling today's message, This Is Us. This Is Us. I know there's a show called This Is Us. This is an outdated title, I think, because the show might not even be on, on, on TV anymore. I don't know. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, they tell us who we are. Now, I'm not a member of Community Bible Church of Northern Westchester. I'm just a guest here. I am a member of New Hope Fellowship, a church that meets in Tarrytown. That's my local church. But the identity we're looking at today, again, it includes every local church. It, 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 it unites people from every local congregation. And, and not just in, in New York or Westchester. It, it unites people from every congregation amongst the community of believers worldwide who are worshiping and have been worshiping in every language all over the planet. We have a collective identity, and, and with that identity comes a calling, a calling to collectively represent the heart and the character of God on this earth. Now, you know, um, you know baby boomers? Baby boomers, those are Americans who were born between 1946 and 1964, roughly. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, baby boomers were once, they were once called the me generation. The me generation. 
because, and, and I'll leave it to you to decide whether this is accurate or not. I don't know. But the observation was made is that that particular generation was marked by a certain um, self-centeredness. They, they, they coined words like self-realization and, and self-fulfillment. They focused, it said, on their desires and their particular dreams and, and, and hopes as individuals and their experiences as individuals. Now, I happen to belong to Generation X. Generation X is roughly those people who were born between 1965 and 1980. That's me. Now, I believe that our generation has done a pretty good job of being self-centered, too. I think one of the ways that our self-focus manifests itself is through the emphasis that we place on our personal individual rights, our personal entitlements. We're, we're kind of, we could be called the me generation, too, I think. But in 2013, in 2013, uh, Time Magazine published the cover story on millennials. Those are people born roughly between 81 and 1996. And the cover reads, the me, me, me generation. The me, me, me generation. You see that image of that woman taking a selfie? That's the generation that, that, that might be said to have originated or at least coined the phrase, the selfie. I, don't, I wonder if there are any Generation Z folks here. Maybe, maybe they left the room already. But those are born between 97 and 2012. I wonder, I wonder if the Z, Generation Z could be characterized as self-centered and self-obsessed too. I wonder. Because it almost seems, <laughs> yes, yes, it almost seems like every generation has looked at the one that goes before and says, oh, you think you're the me generation? Let me show you what self-centeredness really looks like, right? Hold my drink. I'll show you how to really be focused on self. And that self-centeredness is reflected on the one hand in the way that we promote ourselves, the way we promote images of ourselves on social media, for instance, and and by the way, we've also tended to isolate ourselves from one another. To think about ourselves strictly as individuals and to fail to see ourselves as members of something bigger or part of something collective. Now, perhaps that's less of a generational problem and maybe it's more of a human problem. It seems that people have been isolating themselves and and falling back into their own little self-centered worlds for a very long time. Perhaps it's only become more pronounced as we've developed new ways to isolate ourselves and individuate, as they say. You know, it was St. Augustine who wisely observed that humanity, when humanity fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, something changed, and he described it this way. He says, humanity became curved in upon itself curved in upon itself. Now, he said that 1,600 years ago, but doesn't that describe us? Bent in towards ourselves, my rights, my comfort, my expectations, my image. The specifics will change from generation to generation as our lives are shaped by history and technology and, and pandemics. But the self-focus, it persists from generation to generation. And this has many negative consequences, doesn't it? One of those negative consequences is this. We miss out on, we tend to ignore the joy and the beauty of being a part of God's great big family. 
because we're so bent in on ourselves. One of the joys that I've experienced just over the past half hour here with you today is the celebrating of being a family. It's a theme that's resonated throughout the songs that we've sung and the words that have been shared. But how often, how often do we neglect to focus on our part as of a big, big family and tend to just fold in on ourselves? It's vital. It's vital that we regularly remember who we are collectively as a community church. Today, we're going to think about what that church is. We're going to think about the church in the biggest broadest sense of the word because the bible uses the word church in at least two ways it it uses church to mean the totality of god's people throughout the world and throughout history but it also uses the word church sometimes to mean smaller local communities like cbc or my church nhf so to differentiate between those two versions of church sometimes we call them respectively the universal church right that's global it's existed for centuries and then there's the local church Local churches that are the embodiment of the universal church. So today we're going to think about some vital, unmistakable characteristics of the universal, global, century-spanning community called the church. I'm going to invite you to read 1 Peter 2, verse 9 with me. I'm going to be reading, from, we've read it already from two different versions. We're going to read it from a third version. Now this is the English Standard Version. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The apostle Peter wrote these words to followers of Jesus who were scattered around five different Roman provinces. These people did not all know each other. Far from it. They were spread out over roughly 300,000 kilometers, or square miles, I should say. They, They did not all share the same ethnicity. They did not all share the same culture. They did not all share the same native language. They were likely Greek speakers, but not necessarily as a first language. Plus, they lived in a society that didn't think too highly of Christians. So it would have been very easy for them to, to completely forget. who it, it would have been easy for them to experience an identity crisis, to forget who they were by either blending in completely with the people around them and the systems around them, or, or to just be confused about who, what makes us us, what makes us different. So Peter's here to help them and to help us. He's saying, this is your collective community, your collective identity, folks. If you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, here are eight characteristics that mark you. And don't think you singular, think you plural. Let's not think me, let's think us. First of all, we are chosen. We are chosen. When you hear the word race here, he says you are a chosen race. Think people group. A collection of folks with something in common. But the thing that we have in common here is not ethnicity. It's not culture. It's not a shared language necessarily. It's not a a, a similar pigmentation, a melanin level. It's not that. What, What we have in common is that we are chosen by God. A chosen race. Now, 
That's not something that should make us prideful or arrogant. On the contrary, God explains to his people why he chose them. Someone said the word grace in the back. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says to his people, it was not, get this straight, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, I did not choose you because you impressed me. You were, you were remarkably unimpressive, he says. Perhaps even the least impressive. But, he says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's saying, listen, he's saying, I chose you because I loved you. And I loved you because I chose to love you. It sounds circular, doesn't it? I chose you because I love you, and I love you because I chose to love you. My daughter, Daniela, who's now seven years old, and she's getting big so quickly, but ever since she was very tiny, we would do this little thing together where I would say, Daniela, I call her Nella. I say, Nella, do you know? Do you know why Daddy loves you? And she would respond. She, oh, she knows how to respond. She says, you love me because you love me. And I said, but don't, I, I love you because you're beautiful, and I love you because you're smart, and I love you because you're my daughter, and I love you for so many reasons, but fundamentally, you know why I love you? I love you because I love you. And this is how God communicates his love to us. In other words, we were chosen by grace, by grace, not because of anything we've done or any potential that God saw in us or any promise that we showed. We are chosen by grace. Amen. We're also an anointed people. He says, you are a royal priesthood. We are anointed, anointed. In Old Testament Israel, there were two most important positions that could be held by a person, were priests and kings. So to be a priest or to be a king, two most important roles in society. One's job, the priest, was to worship and lead others to worship. The other's job was to represent God as a ruler. That's the king's job. Priests and kings. These were also the only two offices for which a person would be anointed. Anointed. Oil would be poured over them to set them apart for their job when they were appointed as a priest or as a king. God, God, says, God says, you, my people, you're anointed. You're anointed. You are set apart collectively to worship me like a priest and to bring others to worship me like a priest and you're set apart collectively to serve as my representatives on earth, like rulers, to serve as my representatives. And by the way, you know, Jesus fulfilled both of these offices. He was, he is, priest and the king. And so if we have been joined with him, there is a sense in which we have, by connection with Jesus, taken on something of these roles. We have been anointed to be worshipers, priests, and to be God's representatives, rulers, collectively, collectively. We are anointed, chosen and anointed. And Peter goes on to tell us that we've been cleansed as well, cleansed. He says, you're a holy nation. Holy means to be set apart, but it also, it also has to do with being purified. 
This means that God has cleansed us and declared us pure. He has declared us holy. We are a cleansed and forgiven people. When we look at the church worldwide, when we look at Christians throughout Westchester, throughout New York, throughout America, and throughout the rest of the world, we can say these are people who are chosen, anointed, and cleansed. Flawed. Sinful in many ways. Imperfect. Works in progress, no doubt, but fundamentally holy. Declared holy by God and progressively becoming experientially more holy over time. We are cleansed. Cleansed, forgiven people. That's just one of the realities, actually, that's, that's, that's captured in our baptism as well. It's one of the aspects of what baptism communicates to us. Is this, this, this cleansing that's represented in the entering and exiting the water. Now, we're also a protected people. This is good news. It means we're safe. God says we are people for his own possession, his own possession. You know, the Bible uses the language of adoption. We were once orphaned people, cut off from God, cut off from our creator, but no longer. The church is not an orphanage. It's a household. It's a household. We were once an enslaved people, but no longer. No longer. We've been freed and welcomed as family. God now says, you're mine. That means that we're safe. We are safe. Someone always seems to be bringing an alarm about the, the great and, and, and newest creeping threats facing the church. And there are many threats to the church, there's no doubt. But the new thing that threatens the church, it's always something new. It threatens to destroy us. Maybe it's, it's, it's secularism. It's shifting conceptions of right and wrong. It's immorality in our society. Or it's persecution. These threats. And the church gets alarmed. And the, and the church starts decrying the, the dangers of, of whatever it might be. But we need to remember we are safe. The church is safe. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build her. I will build it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are threats. There's no doubt. There are threats. And, and, and frankly, I would argue that, that perhaps the worst threats come from within the church, not even from outside. Our sins... Sadly, the external threats can sometimes distract us from the internal threats that we need to address. But even our own flaws, even our own sins will not kill the church. They will not destroy God's mission to bring salvation and renewal to the world through his people. He says, I will build my church. Nothing will prevail against them. The church is safe because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are a protected people. So as we pray for our brothers and sisters globally, we can pray with confidence. They are a protected people. Safe in the Lord. What can man do to us? We are also commissioned people, commissioned. He says, that you, you've been chosen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. This is why this people exists. It's why we exist collectively, to proclaim God's excellencies. Community Bible Church's website says this. 
We believe that God has brought us together by his grace. Amen. Through Jesus Christ, we have a new identity as God's family and a new purpose in the world. God's Spirit is leading and empowering us to share this good news with others. That's proclaiming the excellencies of God, because where are the excellencies of God seen more clearly than in the message of the gospel? That God was willing to take the form of a man and die in the place of sinners in order that we might be reconciled to him? There's nothing more excellent than that. My home church, our, our vision statement says, we exist to behold and broadcast the majesty and mercy of God. We, that's why we exist, to, to, to behold, that is to see, to experience, to worship in the presence of God, and then to broadcast, that means to communicate, to, to share his mercy and his majesty through our words and through our deeds. And that's not a vision that's specific to my church. It's a shared vision, isn't it? A collective vision. That's why we exist. That's why we exist. Pastor H.B. Charles, who's a, a man I admire greatly, he, he once, I remember hearing him once say, when you lose your why, you lose your way. When you lose your why, you lose your way. If you forget why you exist, you forget where to go and what to do. We exist collectively to be a living and breathing pointer to the beauty of Christ. Through words and deeds of faith and mercy and justice, our existence is meant to be evidence of the goodness of God. Like I said, it's captured most beautifully in the gospel. And so we must declare it and live it out collectively as a people for the sake of people. And you know what? It's not even just for the sake of people that we carry out this commission, this mission. We communicate his excellencies, his wisdom, his power, his love, his justice. Through our words and deeds, we communicate that to other people. But, but listen, look at what Ephesians 3.10 says. This is interesting. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, so that, this is the, 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 the church has been set up and gifted and equipped and commissioned, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This global, century-spanning community exists in part to proclaim the excellencies of God to those who occupy the spiritual domain. Rulers and authorities, the angels, the spirits that we cannot see, but we only read of them in the scriptures, We are meant to broadcast and show the excellencies of God to the entire universe, to show off his wisdom. We are also a called people. I'm just moving through the rest of this passage. We're called people. First Peter tells us that we were called out of darkness and into marvelous light. We were once living in darkness. Do you remember living in darkness? blindly stumbling through life, banging into walls, tripping over stuff, hurting people and hurting ourselves, stepping into who knows what. He called us out. He called us out. If you've been called to follow Jesus, do you remember the darkness that you once walked in, not knowing what you were doing or why? Or maybe, maybe you thought you had it all figured out. 
while you continue to bang into walls and fall into ditches. I've done so many stupid things in my life. I have no excuse other than to say I was blind and headed to destruction like a drunk driver headed down the wrong way on the Taconic in the dark with the headlights off. And God reached down and pulled us off. And he turned on the light so that you could see the dangers and find rescue. And you believed. And now you live in the light. I wonder if he's been calling anyone here, if he's been calling. He's been calling. We're also diverse people. Diverse, but united. Diverse and united. Verse 10 says, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. In other words, you were once not a people group. You were just people scattered all over the place. The global church is a seemingly random assortment of people with very little in common. There was a time when we in this room would have very little in common. We are of different ethnicities, generations. We live in different places. We come from different places. Maybe we speak different first languages. But now we are a people, a people. I happen to be the son of Brazilian immigrants. My parents came to the United States in the 60s. I grew up in New Jersey, and I've been married to my wife, Delimar, who is from Dominican Republic. We've been married for 20 years. I have five kids. So, of course, now if I were, if I were to meet Today, if I were to meet another 49-year-old son of Brazilian immigrants who grew up in New Jersey, who's been married to a Dominican woman for 20 years, and happens to have five kids, and is bald, we'd have lots in common. We'd have lots to talk about. Like, oh, you're, you're like me. But if that man were not a follower of Jesus Christ, then the fact is I have more in common with you than I have with him. I have more in common with Sister Linda and the Escarpe family. Did I pronounce that correctly? More in common with David, even though I can't make anything artistic. Because we, because we share a radical, a, 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 a deep down connection. You, brothers and sisters, you have more in common with a Christian in Jerusalem or Gaza or Russia or Ukraine than you do with your cousin who doesn't know Jesus. And that does not in any way denigrate your relationship with your cousin or your relationship with anyone else. That relationship may be very deep and very important to you. I'm assuming that you have deep, loving relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And those relationships matter. And they're a gift to you from God. And you are deep, connected friends and loved ones, no doubt. I'm just saying that your connection to someone else who knows Jesus runs deeper even than that, whether you recognize it or not. And perhaps we don't recognize the depth, the radical nature of that bond that we have with each other in Jesus. We are also a loved people. And this is the last thing that we see here. We're loved people. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God did not strike a deal with us. He poured out mercy on us because he's rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 says he's rich in mercy. Look what it says there. 
but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together, together with Christ by grace. You, plural, you, collective, you, church, across the globe, by grace, you have been saved. He showed mercy, and, and notice, notice where that mercy came from. Why did he show us mercy? I've underlined it. Because of the great love with which he loved us. He had mercy on us because he loved us. Jesus didn't die so that God could love you. Jesus died because God loved you. Jesus died because God loved you. Because as we said earlier, he chose to love you. All of this started with God, not us. He chose, he anointed, he cleansed, he called, he commissioned, he united us, he loved us and loves us. And because of him, this is now who we are. I want to give you a couple of quick takeaways and I'll sit down. As we seek to embrace and live out our collective community, our collective identity as God's church worldwide, the way we want to live that out, the place where we want to live that out is in the mundane context of local communities like CBC. You belong to a global community that spans the centuries, but you live that out, live out that identity right now in this local church. Like I tell my church sometimes, I say, think globally, act locally. Think about who you are in the big picture, but, but live that out right here with the brothers and sisters that you belong to the same community with. That's hard. That's hard because we all have our individualistic bents. We, we think of self, and, and, it, and it, it's hard because we have differences, and those differences aren't somehow erased when we become Christians, are they? No, they become something to celebrate now, actually. But also, they, us, they present us with challenges. But we'll be helped to face those challenges, those differences, different opinions, different expectations, different goals, different personalities. We will be equipped to better face those differences when we remember our collective identity. Secondly, a misguided sense of who we are will lead us into all kinds of trouble. If you forget who you are, you'll end up in all kinds of trouble. That's true at the personal level, but it's also true at the community level, collectively. When the church forgets her identity, she will begin to act in ways that she was never meant to. She'll begin to take for granted and neglect the things that make her the church. So let's remember, let's push back against any impulse to make church about my convenience, my agenda, my politics, my preferences, and instead think us our identity, our calling, our mission. And lastly, the last thing I'll say to you is that this collective community that we've been talking about, I hope we, we get a, a vision for the beauty and the grandeur of it. But the best news I can share with you is that anyone can get in on it. Anyone could become a part of this community. You are welcomed in. We all want to be part of something bigger than us, don't we? We all want to be part of something big that matters. There's nothing bigger and nothing that matters more on anything that has more eternal significance than the church that Jesus is building. And you are welcome then if you'll simply believe in him.